Today we're going to finish up our series on the Ascension. And as for obvious reasons, we're uh, studying this as we become Ascension Church. Uh, what does that mean? Many have asked, like, what, what is that about? And uh, I love the name, but like, what's, what's behind it? And we've kind of broken it down over the last four weeks and saying that it's really the, the culmination of what Christ has done here on earth. And the first week we talked about how Christ has done it all. When he ascended, it finished his work on earth so far. He has accomplished salvation for his people. Then we saw that Christ is over all. When he ascended, it clearly means that he is exalted. And so he is the Lord over everything, heaven and earth, under the earth. Every sphere is under his domain. And then the third week, Christ is in it all. We talked about how Christ then uh, fills all things. Because of his ascension, it means that everything now relates to Christ. Everything for our very lives. We see our lives not just as random events, but as theologically geared. As we see that a whole earth and all of our lives fit into the story of Christ. Today, we're talking about Christ becomes our all. And we're talking about how the ascension of Christ shows us how we mature, how we grow, and how we progress towards the new heavens and the new earth that we are moving towards. And as we read this morning from Philippians and then a little bit from Colossians, we can be sensitive to that idea of heaven and earth and uh, what's, what's the good domain and where... What, uh, what are we actually moving towards? And it brings up some questions for us. So let's read these verses together. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join, me in, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Skipping to Colossians chapter 3 for just a few verses here. It's in your bulletin as well. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth 
what's the deal with heaven and earth in Scripture? And we look at passages like this and we wonder, um, what, is, what is it telling us about, you know, about the direction of our lives? When we think about the ascension, and we've talked about this a number of times, uh, that we are ascended with Christ, and our life now is called like an upward call. That's what he says here in Philippians chapter 3. And throughout the scripture, there's kind of this upward movement towards God. And some people have taken that and said that really the things of earth, the things that are down here are, are bad things and things that we shouldn't be focused on. And, uh, and then others have said, well, no, that can't be true because, you know, God has made the earth as well as the heaven. So he made it good. And, and so there's kind of a pendulum swing back sometimes saying, no, the earth is, is really good, and heaven can be kind of an escape. It's kind of the thing that we, that we look forward to, but, but it can be a bad thing to look forward to heaven because it causes you not to focus on the things of earth. There's a tension there in Scripture, obviously. What is the direction that we are being pulled towards? And how do we understand, is the earth good? Is heaven good? Are they both good? Um, and how do we understand verses like uh, Colossians 3, which says that we should seek the things that are above and not the things that are on the earth? We just finished reading uh, this week the silver chair. As a family, we read out loud to our kids. And the silver chair, one of C.S. Lewis's uh, books. And, you know, I feel bad for the, for the silver chair sometimes. It's kind of the unsung hero of, of the Narnia books. It's, it's really nobody's favorite book, uh, let's be honest. I probably get emails from a few of you saying, hey, it's actually my favorite. But um, the silver chair, but it, it, has, it has some amazing moments. And I'll just give you the, the two-sentence overview of the book, if you don't remember it, if you haven't read it yet. Uh, the two children that are involved with this are Eustace and Jill, and, and these kids are, of course, ripped out of England uh, where, you know, they're, having, they're living their lives and they, they're thrown into Narnia in a time of need because that's the, the, the plot of every book is there's a need in Narnia and so we've got to call on the sons of, of Adam and the daughters of Eve and, and we've got to bring them into the world and so they, they get pulled into Narnia and they're given a task to follow Aslan's orders and if they follow his orders, then they will, it will lead them to rescuing Prince Relian, who is the Prince of Caspian, and he is the rightful heir of Narnia, but he has been gone. He's been uh, trapped by an evil witch, and, uh, and nobody has seen him for years. And so they go through their task, and to, 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 to do this task well, to summarize the book, they have to go to the underworld. They have to go underneath things, to the domain of the serpent witch who has Prince Relian under her control and also has controlled all of these underground gnomes that do her bidding. Well, spoiler alert, it's been out for 40 years, um, 50, it's been longer than that. Uh, the, the witch is, is killed and, you know, Relian is uh, released from the, the burden of being uh, held by her. The spell is broken. All the, the gnomes underneath the ground then realize that they've been under her control, and so they are free as well. 
When all that happens, uh, an underground spell is also broken where there's a rising tide underneath and this, this tide is coming up and filling up the underground and so the, the children are trying to escape back to the surface. They're trying to ascend and go up to where they are from. But during the midst of this rising tide, the, the gnomes who have recovered themselves say, why don't you children, uh, Eustace, Jill, and, and now Prince Relian who's with them, why don't you come down and, and, and hang out under, underground for a while. We'll show you wonders that are underneath the earth. You think you've seen diamonds. These, those are just like little surface rocks. Those are pale things compared to the amazing things that are underneath the ground. And for a moment, Prince Relian thinks about staying and going on a great adventure underground. Remember, the gnomes are not evil. They've just been held under the spell just like Prince Relian has. And so he considers their invitation. But in the end, the waters are rising and they make a split-second decision instead to ascend back to Narnia. And as they come out, Prince Relian has a moment where he says, you know, I really almost got us trapped down there. By taking that time and considering that for a few moments, I really almost lost us for good. I almost got us trapped. It wasn't the case that there was something particularly wrong with the underworld. It was held under the witch's spell, but the gnomes belonged there. They, they wanted to be there. But it still had the power to trap them. Prince Relian and the children belonged in Narnia. They belonged, they had an allegiance. Prince Relian was supposed to be the king of Narnia, the rightful heir. And if he had been trapped underneath, he could not have done what he was supposed to do. I think C.S. Lewis is on to something in terms of understanding our relationship between heaven and earth. The underworld, the place of the earth that God has created, is not an evil place. This is a good place. It's full of beauty. It's full of amazing things, treasures, pleasures, beauties. But it does have the power to trap us. And that's what I think is going on when the scriptures talk about how we don't need to set our minds on the things that are on the earth, but the things that are in heaven. We recognize the goodness of what God is doing down here, but also that he has made us for a different world. We are the sons of Adam. We are the daughters of Eve, and we belong in Narnia with him, where Christ is ascended, where he's sitting on the throne. We belong with him. That's where our citizenship is. That's where our minds are. That's where our transformed bodies are going. And so we focus on the upward call of Christ, not because everything down here is bad, but because that's where we ultimately belong. So here's what I want us to see this morning. The ascension provides the direction for maturity. Christ becomes our all. The ascension gives us the direction, that is, the upward call for maturity. Now, this is easy to see throughout the scriptures, if we just take a sampling, the people of God ascend to where God is. That is the story 
of Scripture. Think about Moses going up on Mount Sinai to receive the Lord's law. He ascended. He was from the people. He ascended into God's presence. Think about Jacob who ascended the ladder in his dream to be with the Lord. Think about Elijah who was carried off into heaven, ascends into heaven through a chariot. Think about Jerusalem itself, the raised city. Jerusalem is on a mountain. You have to go up to go to Jerusalem. That's, I've experienced that. A decade ago when I was in uh, Israel, we flew into Tel Aviv. It's where the airport is. And you drive to Jerusalem, and you're on a bus, and the whole time the bus is tilted up. You're going up towards Jerusalem. And so the people of God when they would come to Jerusalem multiple times a year or at least once a year to sacrifice, they would walk up. And that's why we have the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. The Ascent, they're ascending to Jerusalem because that's where the presence of God is. It's not just in the Old Testament. Paul now says that Jerusalem is the city above. In Galatians 4, he says, now we are moving towards the other Jerusalem, that is heaven, which is above, which makes sense of why he calls it here the upward call, because it is where Christ is. This is the direction of maturity. And interestingly, when I read this this week in Philippians, I noticed all of the the body language in this passage, what he pictures as the upward call or the, the transformation that we can have in Christ is a transformation of our body's desires. That's really what it is. At the end, he says, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And if you go back through the passage, you can see how this direction for maturity actually speaks to parts of the body that are the seats of desire. Let me tell you what they are. He talks about the upward call. It's like on the ear, the call that's calling out to us. Then he talks about the watching eyes. Keep your eyes on those who are examples. And then he talks about setting your mind on the things that are above. And those are the three things we're going to look at this morning, how our desires are transformed in this direction of maturity. So first is this, an upward call. Paul talks about hearing Christ call him upwards. That's the direction for his maturity. He says, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this. Now, what is the this that he's talking about? If you go just two verses before that, you'll see what Paul has, has said. He says, uh, this is what I'm going for in verse 10. Um, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul wants to know him, to share with, in with Christ, to become like him. And so that, that becomes the goal. And then he says, not that I have obtained this. In fact, there is no actual direct object there. It doesn't say this there. It says, not that I've already obtained. Leaving it open, like, kind of like when we say, I haven't arrived. We don't have an object there, right? We just mean there's, there's kind of a goal in our minds, and whatever that object is, I know that I'm not there yet. That's what he says. I haven't obtained. I, I haven't arrived to this goal, to know him, to share in his sufferings, 
to become like him. But he says, I'm still running after it. He switches now to a military or a hunting type language where he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on so that I can seize Christ who has seized me. It's the the hunt or the seeking after, after a military battle, the hunting down. That's the image there. He's saying, that's what I'm after. I'm after this goal to know Christ, to share in his sufferings, to be like him. I'm hunting after it. I keep going. Then he says again, just to make it more clear, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I'm not there yet. However, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. From the language of hunting to the language of the games, the race. I pursue the end of this, straining towards the finish line, not looking behind as any runner knows that's a fatal moment. When you turn back and you look to see where you are, it can throw off your rhythm, it can throw off your speed, and you can lose the race. And he says, I've got to forget what lies behind. Forgetting there doesn't mean that he has amnesia about his previous life, that he doesn't still wake up in the middle of the night realizing that he persecuted the church of Christ. That still happened, I am sure. It doesn't mean forgetting, but like, like I can't call it to mind, but the way that the scriptures talk about God forgetting, that he will remember our sins no more. It doesn't mean that he can't call them to mind or he can't He has amnesia about them. What it means is that they have no more power over you, these sins. And so he says, I forget what lies behind. What is it that lies behind for Paul? Well, it has to be a mixed bag, just like any any one of us. His his sins, his persecution of the church, the things that weigh him down, he forgets those but also his achievements. Paul talks about the successes that he had to forget, that he was taught by Gamaliel, that he was you know, the first in his class, that he was the best Jew around, like that, that he had achieved so much, he considers all that rubbish, right? So he had to leave behind both his successes and his failures so that he could focus on this finish line and that not letting those things have power over him. He's moving towards it and towards it, but he hasn't got it yet. What Paul is talking about here is his holy dissatisfaction. That he is is led forward more and more. There's a direction to his maturity. He wants more and more, and there's an energy there. He's highlighting here a tension in the Christian life, which is there's a tension between resting in Christ and pressing on into maturity, isn't there? It's even in the language that he uses here, that, that tension. He says, look, he uses the word perfect twice here, but he uses it in different ways. 
He says, look, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But then later he describes himself as perfect. He says, uh, let those of us who are mature, that's the same word for perfect there, think this way. I'm not perfect, and yet let those who are perfect, perfected think this way. What he's, the tension there is, look, I, I am mature. I am being perfected, and yet I want more. I'm resting in, in who I am, but I also want more. Even in the way that he describes seizing Christ or grabbing hold of him, I press on to seize him, but he has already seized me. So he's comfortable in his being with Christ already. He has ascended with Christ. He's sitting with Christ now, and yet he's still trying to make Christ his own. That tension is part of that mature process where we realize that the scriptures speak about it this way, that we are already with Christ. Ephesians tells us we are already seated with him in the heavenly places. We have received everything, and yet the call is to pursue after him. So Christians are called to be both secure and be motivated. That's part of even our worship service as we say, confess your sins, hear the assurance of God's grace. Rest in Christ. I love how Eric said that earlier. I hope you can rest in that. Secure. And now we're having a sermon about maturity, right? Where you are called to press on, like Paul says, one thing I do, I'm going towards the finish line. And those two things are not opposed to each other. We press on towards the thing that we have already received. It's a beautiful thing about Christianity. There is a call. He says, it's a call, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what is at the end. That's what's beckoning him on. That's what's motivating him, is the call on his ear. He hears it, and then he is following after Christ. I couldn't help this week in reading this, but to think about Frozen 2. And the call that Elsa receives, right? Don't lie, you've seen it. Um, some of you haven't, right? Frozen 2. Everything is settled in the kingdom. Is it Arendelle? Is that what it is? The, the kingdom is good. Elsa is the queen. She's the ice queen. Everybody's accepted her powers. Everything's great. But she's unsettled. She keeps hearing a call on the wind. What does it sound like? Four notes, right? Ah. You know, and she hears it. it. It's like there's something out there. And she has to go pursue it. There's a hidden story that has to be put right, and that's the subject of the movie. And, and in Elsa's case, so she follows the call, and, and she keeps hearing this voice, and she finds that it's actually herself that's calling to her. Like it's her she, sorry, another spoiler alert. Um, that one's a little more recent. All right, I'll just say this. It's a journey of self-discovery. Paul isn't discovering himself. He hears a call. And the call is to where Christ is seated. It's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's not of himself. It's something so far up that it takes 
a lifetime, it takes longer than a lifetime to reach the call of Christ on his ear, motivates him, moves him every day. The seed of desire, what do we listen to? What do we, what's beckoning to us? For Paul, it's Christ. The ascended Christ beckons him towards his presence. Then he switches to another part of the body. He says, the eye. Another seat of desire. Where he says, in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul here is saying, this is who you should watch, and you, you should avoid watching. Imitate me, he says. That's not a selfish thing, as, as he says in, in 1 Corinthians. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's not trying to make everybody like Paul. He's trying to make everybody like Christ. So watch me. I'm trying to be like Christ. As I go towards that one thing, you should be watching me and people like me. Keep your eyes on people that give you that energy towards Christ. In contrast, watch out for the enemies of Christ. Even though they are, they are the enemies, Paul is still weeping over them. Those who have gone in a different direction, who have minds set on earthly things. Their minds are set on earthly things, and again, as we've said It is not saying there then that the earth is bad. It's saying to be set on the earth is bad. To be focused on the things of this earth. It's the person, the enemy of Christ here, is the one who has such a mind set on the things of the earth that we really start to believe that the things of this earth are the ends of themselves. That right now matters the most. Like C.S. Lewis, in a different context, has reminded us before, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. This is what he's talking about, saying those who have their God as their belly, their end is destruction. Those who've set their minds on earthly things, they've settled for less. Don't watch people like that. Their glory is their shame. I sometimes watch, I was just talking with one of you about this maybe last week. I can't remember who it was. Uh, Sometimes there's, there's these videos that always draw my eye online. Early celebration fails. Early celebration fails. And they describe, you know, it's a video of, of somebody that's running a race and they celebrate too early. They start doing this, you know, as they come to the finish line. And meanwhile, there's that person right next to them, you know, who's like catching up and they don't see them. It's, it's so painful. It's amazing to watch at the same time, you know. That's what these are like. It's early celebration fail. There's no no shame in 
not winning the race if it's a close race. But there is a shame if you glory before you win the race and then you don't. That is a shameful thing. And that's what those who are the enemies of Christ are like, Paul says. It's like they're, they're, they're celebrating too early. Yay! Drink, ambition, sex, you know, all the good things that God's given us. That's where it's at. That's, I have all these things. I can pursue all these things. It's like glorying too soon. Paul says, keep your eyes on those who are actually working towards finishing the race for the joy set before them. Not for the temporary joy that comes from setting your mind on the things of the earth. God has offered us so much more. Our faith is that we believe that the highest and best gifts are eternal. And that straining towards them is actually where life is found. Not in temporarily settling for things that are also good. And you need people around you who are running the race so that you can imitate them. And you can watch those who are not and seeing and seeing the contrast, you can faithfully follow. There's an upward call. There's an imitating eye. Thirdly and finally, there's a heavenly mind. Go with me to Colossians chapter 3, that second passage that we read, where it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The alternative to a mind set on the things of earth is a mind set on the things that are above, in heaven. But notice why we set our minds on the things in heaven. It's not because it's an escape. It's not because... We get gold and silver and we finally, you know, or different interpretations of the end and, you know, different religions, virgins at the end, whatever. It's not that there's a huge prize there that is the motivating factor. It is. That's where Christ is. That's where Christ is. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And if Christ is there, then you can be there with him now, presently. And when he appears, you'll be with him when he appears. In Philippians, it says that it's our citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, he says in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is a citizenship? It's a place where you live, and it's the place where your allegiance is. And that was the problem, ultimately, with Reilly and Prince Reilly and staying behind in the underworld, is that that was not where his citizenship was and not where his kingdom was. It wasn't evil. It was just that he was the rightful king of Narnia and a citizen of the place above, which is the new heavens and the new earth, Narnia. And every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve is also a citizen and a king and a queen, as the scripture tells us, of that place. It's where Christ is, and it's where we 
belong. And so the direction of maturity means that we ascend toward that place where Christ is. Listening to the call. Looking with our eyes at those who are doing it well. Setting our minds. And the result is a transformed body. Look at verse 21. It will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That power that Christ received above all things. When he ascended and sat at the right hand. That same power will make us ascend to him in the end. Many of you know the movie Chariots of Fire, and there's a there's a scene. If you remember in the movie, the characters are Eric Liddell, who's the Christian runner, and Abraham's, who's running, you know, for himself. And Abraham's has a, a love interest named Sybil, and they all they all offer their own perspective on the race, so to speak, which is of course about the Olympics, but also about life. And Abraham's has just lost a race, and he's, he's sulking in the bleachers. And Sybil walks up to him, and he says to her, If I can't win, I won't run. And she says back to him, she offers a little bit better perspective. She says, Well, if you don't run, you can't win. Uh, basically turning it around on him, saying, Look, I know that you're discouraged, but if you, if you just run, then, then at least you have the possibility of success. That's a little better perspective. But then Liddell's, Liddell's perspective is much better still, which is, of course, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. In other words, he wasn't running to achieve something. He was running in response to something. He already had a calling on his life to be a missionary overseas. He ran out of the pleasure of God. And so he provides the biblical perspective that Paul is capturing here, which is, look, the Christian life of maturity is pursuing what you already own. It's going after the thing that you've already received. It's taking hold of Christ, who has already taken hold of you. And that is so important to see that one side of it because on your own, you will not ascend to God. You cannot be responsible for the direction of your maturity. You cannot achieve. You cannot ascend. I mean, think about what the scripture says. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart doesn't lift up his soul to another. This is the one who can ascend. None of us can ascend Christ is the one with clean hands and a pure heart who has that right to ascend. You are not able, you are not worthy to ascend to God. And so therefore it's necessary to see that Christ has seized you. Christ has brought you to the heavenly places. He has done the work. That's the good news. You're already there. But interestingly, the way the scriptures talk about it then is that out of that Christ seizing us, out of him taking hold of us, there should result an energy to run, an upward movement, a call, an imitation, a mind set on the things that are above. And so we can run with his pleasure, already knowing that it's secure for us, 
How do we do that? As we close, how do we, how do we run? How do we get that energy? And I think that Paul here helps us in the phrase that he uses in verse 13, he says, one thing I do. One thing I do. That focus. You look at that and you say, what are you talking about, Paul? One thing? You did one thing? This is the Apostle Paul, who planted 20-something churches. Right? We're celebrating, you know, I planted one. It took a lot the last six years. Trust me, okay? He's planted 20 of them. He's planted 20 churches. He keeps up correspondence in every city. He preaches in the streets. He does his taxes, right? He goes home at night and he makes tents for a living. What do you mean, one thing? One thing I do. He doesn't mean here that it's the only thing that he does. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's the one thing he does, if nothing else. Whatever I do, whatever comes up in my life, I'm going to move toward Christ. This is going to be the focus of my life. This is going to be my energy. I'm going to respond to this call. I'm going to watch. I'm going to set my mind on the things that are above if nothing else. And so the challenge for us then, knowing that we're already seated with Christ, knowing that he has seized us, if you have put your trust in him, you have, not, you have no need to ascend to the Lord on your own power. But now that you are there, ask yourself this, what gets my focused time? What gets my, if nothing else, I will do this time? If nothing else, I'm going to get eight hours of sleep. If nothing else, I'm going to keep up on sports sets. If nothing else, I'm going to do my makeup every day. If nothing else, I'm going to be the top performer at work. If nothing else, we see, we do this. We give something or someone or some perspective of focused time in our life. What is that thing that gets the focus time? If you need further help discovering what that is, you can go back to those seats of desires that Paul talked about. Your ears. To whom do you listen? What, what do you listen to the most? Back to your eyes. Who do you watch? Who do you want to be like more than anyone else? Back to your mind. What do you think about? What do you dwell on? What do you fall asleep being comforted with? What is on your mind? Those are the ways that desires come to us. Whatever that is, that if nothing else thing, it's not a bad thing, I'm sure. Perhaps it is. Perhaps it's a sinful thing, but perhaps it's your own ambitions or your own appearance or you know your your own friendships or many of the good gifts that God has given you it's not as though he's inviting you out of those things but look ask yourself this what would that desire look like if it was transformed if it became part of something else of this one thing
to forget what lies behind and to strain forward to what Christ is calling us to do, that upward call in Christ Jesus. How would that look if it was set in the context of you seizing the one who has already seized you? How would it look if it was part of the invitation of a life that was ascending towards Christ, where he has already seated you 